Over the last six years, we interviewed 30 different people on both our Planetary Postcards and the Undefinable Spirit series of podcasts. And we've decided to spotlight a few segments from some of our 40 podcasts featured in both series. Harry and I had the pleasure of talking with this very eclectic group of people possessing a wide range of knowledge and expertise. Their stories, experiences, and insights may captivate, inform, entertain, and possibly even inspire you. Dr. Claudia Six. Do you think, as uh, I forget the writer's name who wrote the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus... John Gray. Uh, John Gray. He endorsed my book. He was very kind. Okay. Now, do you, in your practice, is that what you see, that there's a distinct difference kind of in the emotional tonality of men versus women and their ability to share those emotions? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> there are huge differences. Now, most of the clients I see are heterosexual. I do see some gay couples or gay individuals on occasion, but as you mentioned at the introduction, I'm near San Francisco and you can't shake a stick without hitting a, a gay therapist, <laughs> right. so you have lots of other options. Mm -hmm. So there are definite differences between men and women, mm -hmm. and women tend to persist in wanting men to read their minds, which they don't, <laughs> and women tend to persist in wanting men to be emotionally like women, mm -hmm. which they are not. Right. And women don't like it when I say this, because then they have to really re-examine their relationships with men and how they are. Mm -hmm. And there's also women who build men up, and there are women who take men down. Mm -hmm. That also has an impact on their sex life. Yeah. So there are definite differences in emotional expression, and again, I hate to generalize. There are women who have a hard time expressing emotionally, and there are men who are very emotionally expressive. But on the whole, men have a harder time identifying their emotions and verbalizing them. Yep. You just have to give them the space. Also, women tend to interrupt. And when you interrupt a man, you miss what he was going to say afterwards. And just because a man stops talking doesn't mean he's done. It means he's thinking about what he's going to say next. Thank you. So, <laughs> Could you have a, a talk with my wife? Could you repeat that, please? <laughs> Could you have a chat with my you, wife while, while you're here? Anyway, carry yeah. on. Sorry. <laughs> and, and women are missing a lot of the good stuff because they're communicating with men the way they communicate with women. Right. And then they mm. complain that there's communication problems. So people don't know this. Mm -hmm. And in terms of sexuality, as I mentioned earlier, men have testosterone, so they come to sex more from their crotch. Women come to it generally more from an emotional place, and I can you know, give you my little soapbox talk about desire, and there's also a video on my website, mm -hmm. but men have testosterone, and they have more of their sexual desire in their crotch, that horny, throbbing loins kind of feeling, mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with it. It's not good or bad. It's just different than how women come to it. Robert Arnone. If anything, architecture is a kind of a balance between art and technology, and both are involved in the creation of it. Would you say that balance between art and technology has changed over the past 30 years, given the sort of the rise of technology? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's, again, another podcast onto itself. I'll just uh, address it this way, that I'm one of those fortunate graduates that came out of school at a time where we were trained to draw by hand. Mm -hmm. But just as I was finishing up my formal education, we were introduced to computers. And so I kind of got my feet on both sides of the equation, but came out of school much more comfortable drawing by hand and introduced to this new technology. Well, as as you can imagine, since all those years after graduating in the 80s, the technology has overrun the profession. So mm. we, we no longer see graduates drawing by hand, per se. We see them immediately immersed into the computer. And AutoCAD and now the latest version, which is Revit, which is their 3D modeling software, which we're early adopters of, again, trying to be on the cusp of technology. We brought in that software to our office uh, 10 years ago when most firms were still uh, debating it. And we embrace the technology. We recognize that our graduates and our interns and our recent hires are much more confident and much more comfortable with the technology. And so we embrace it and we move forward with it. And it's transformed our firm physically. So to give you an idea, when I wrote my exams with the Ontario Association of Architects, there were nine exams to write, which was in and of itself another story. But One of them was a 12-hour exam where we were asked to attend a 12-hour session at the OAA's head office, where in which we had to bring our own drafting table surfaces to the exam. (laughs) So you can imagine there were probably 80 students taking that class and we're all hauling in these boards (laughs) Mm -hmm. with our our parallel rules or our T-squares and set squares. And we had 12 hours to do a set of drawings by hand. And they included architectural, mechanical and some loose structural drawings as well. And you can just imagine just the change in, in how that's conducted today, where students are asked to enter a room, sign on to a computer, and, and do it all on the computer. So it's physical and otherwise. The changes are significant. But we've embraced technology. It's made our firm better. We deliver more for less now to our clients with technology available to us. So our clients all get 3D visualizations of their buildings now very, very early, which they never would have received before. And they're getting that for less than they would have paid before because the technology allows that. Drew Marshall. So you've taken a vow of silence on the El Camino. You've walked the streets as a blind man for a week during Lent. You've gone to Israel to experience something of how people lived in biblical times, wept at the Wailing Wall. What have you learned by doing these kinds of physically and psychologically demanding exercises? Oh, that I'm more narcissistic than I even thought. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the different experiences obviously taught me different things. So are there any common denominators in my learning experiences? I, I think every time I do something that rattles me out of the numbness of our North American consumerism and and just that get up and move forward kind of insanity mm-hmm. every every time i do something that snaps me out of that i i actually fall back in love with humanity and just prior to doing these things i want to set humanity on fire including myself mm-hmm. so these things have been timely it's like my soul builds up with some sort of toxicity and then i implode in some way and i end up doing something like not talking for three months or going blind for a week. You almost sound a bit like your interview with Martin Pistorius. Uh, mm. Wonderful interview. You sound a bit like him in a way in terms of coming out of his estate and kind of waking up. It's almost like you're putting yourself in those situations in order to experience this kind of reawakening. 
Yeah, that's well put. And I think like everybody doesn't get to do this kind of stuff. You don't get to stop your your shift work at the factory in Stelco and go, oh, I think I'll walk the Camino. Oh, I think I'll go blind for a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these guys that are in women that are just doing it and putting food on the table and working their butts off, they're more heroic in my estimation than so many people that we deem heroes these days because I realize a lot of this stuff that I do is as a result of me being a desensitized, easily distracted, and easily bored human being. Andrea Bird. You say that dying in a death-phobic culture is lonely at times, and that you want to share as much of your experience as possible. Can you talk a bit about your experience with cancer, you know, the journey and the process you went through in dealing with the possibility and imminence of death? Uh, Sure. Breast cancer came into my life almost seven years ago, which was a huge shock. It was not on my radar. I'm sure it is for everybody that gets that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. My world flipped upside down, but I, I forged ahead with chemo, radiation, surgery, hoping for the best. Two years ago, I found out that it had metastasized to my bones and my lungs, Mm. which was a bigger shock, actually, because I was feeling relatively well, except for a small nagging pain in my hip. So that was almost an indescribable time, Mm -hmm. coming to terms with one's own mortality. As David White so beautifully says, we must apprentice ourselves to the curve of our own disappearance. Oh, mm. Isn't that gorgeous? And yeah. I, I think of that often because it's exactly what it feels like. It feels like I am on an arc. I'm going to come full circle when I die. And those little tiny movements around the arc are almost imperceptible at times, but other times they're very apparent when dealing with pain or discomfort or uh, energy levels. So you, you sometimes come face to face with the reality that life is never going to be the same way it was before. Mm-hmm. And when one can envision one's own death, there's a shift in how we think about our lives. It's, it's a very finite thing. And that's very real and tangible and not an abstract thought as it was before. I mean, we all know we're going to die. But to know it in your very being, I think it feels different to me than before that diagnosis came. So there has been so much that I've learned from this experience. Janet Lynn Morrison. At the age of 14, apparently one day you come home and find yourself locked out of your family home. This happens on and off, and by the age of 15... You drop out of grade 11 and you enter a girl's home and remain there until getting your own apartment at the age of 16. Why were you locked out at 14 and what transpired during the following two years? Well, the reason that I was separated from my brother and my father was because my mother had a penchant for being in control. And it was her desire that I would be a concert pianist and that she would mold me into such. And it was something that meant a lot to her, I think, to show me off to friends and other family members. And she was a piano teacher herself and she was always showcasing me and 
the reason that I would come home to closed doors was a part of that control. So I did have a stepfather at this time, and we did not get along. He was complete opposite of what I was used to and what my father was. And I didn't appreciate him or the relationship that he had with my mother. And for my mother, she made her new husband the apple of her eye and the focus of all of her activities from day to day. Making sure that he was comfortable and pleased was very important to her. And I sort of got in the way. So wanting to be a regular teenager and go out with my friends and go to barbecues or parties or to the movies or what have you, I would be allowed to go sometimes. And sometimes she would change her mind and tell me that I had to stay home. So I became very defiant and oppositional. I think that I had that running through my veins from an early age. And I would come home and if I was even one minute late, I would find that door to be locked. And there was always a note accompanying the locked door Mm. and it would just say, you're late. And I would have to figure out what I was going to do, where I was going to go. I could stand there knocking until the cows came home. That door was not going to open. So that happened when I least expected it. And so I never knew what was going to happen. I trained my friends who were driving me home or walking me home to stay waiting. And I I started to develop little backup plans and, and scope out garages and sheds and you know, that sort of thing Mm. so that I could find somewhere to sleep. So that's what happened at that point in time. And it became insufferable to be living at home. And my mother was often very angry and there was a lot of fighting and discord, a lot of violence and different things that Mm. made it very, very unpleasant and unhealthy to be living there. Joanna Nuding. Your life began on a ranch in West Texas as one of five sisters. How would you describe your childhood and the kind of impact your parents had on your character, your work choices, and ultimately your decision to pursue your current ambitions? Oh, goodness. So I typically describe my childhood as an all-female Brady Bunch. (laughs) And so my dad had three girls. My stepmom had two girls. And when they married, we were two three-year-olds, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and a nine-year-old. And overnight, I had a house full of sisters. And one of them was my age. And so I was raised like a twin with someone who was tall and skinny. And it was like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger style (laughs) twins. I'm this like short, pudgy little thing. And people were constantly confused because we were dressed alike. Like, Mm. how did this happen? (laughs) So we lived on a ranch. We didn't have brothers. And so we got put to work at a really early age. And we played sports. We were basketball players. And together we had an entire team. When I was a freshman in high school, we're playing in the state basketball tournament. And at one point, four out of the five players on the court were sisters. So I had a lot of really fun moments like that being in a big family. 
Now, I will say that both my stepmom and my father were raised in military households. So sometimes people swing to the opposite side of the pendulum on those things, but my parents didn't. So things were very regimented and organized and you set your clothes out before school the next day and the alarm set, you get up, you do your things, you do your chores, you have breakfast. I would say that at the time, I really felt like I didn't have my autonomy. I did what my sisters did. I was the youngest. I wore hand-me-down clothes. Mm -hmm. My sisters played the clarinet. We have a clarinet, Joanna. You're playing the clarinet. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Definitely no casual baking going on in that house. (laughs) No, no, absolutely (laughs) not. Andrew Welch. I'd like to ask you to give a quick synopsis of your first book, The Value Crisis, and how and or why it led you to writing this one. Okay. Uh, The Value Crisis was an exploration of how we measure value as humans. And it was essentially a discovery that I had about certain inconsistencies in my life, I guess. I observed my behavior and reactions to certain life events as being peculiar, that I thought numbers, being a mathematician, were kind of the answer to everything, and they were the most rational way to approach life. And I realized that there were two different ways of measuring value. One was by number, where more is always worth more, and non-numeric measures of value that didn't have any of those properties. Those are the sort of the human values, the the idea of, of happiness or justice or well-being or health. And you couldn't really stick a number on that. Really, more wasn't always worth more. So you had a sense of sufficiency sometimes. But I looked around me at society and I realized that all of our governments and a lot of our industry and so on was driven by this idea that more is always worth more. And I thought, geez, maybe this is what's getting us into trouble with climate change, Mm. economic disparity, species degradation, and so on. It all seemed to be kind of tied into that. And I thought, well, I can see that both value systems have merit, but I think we're kind of falling out of balance. And that was our value crisis. Pietro Noche. So, Pietro, let me ask you, What's the most positive thing you've seen or have experienced because of COVID? Oh, I can tell you. I have more awareness. How can I say it? Awareness. Awareness that we have to develop and uh, do better the medical cares. (laughs) Yes. That's first of all. The positive thing is I'm not watching TV anymore. Okay. (laughs) Because... uh, (laughs) Because the information is very, very, very strange and um, aggravating, aggravating, aggravating. Yes. The positive thing about the bed and breakfast in my business, the last year, the only one, is that August we had 228 presents. (laughs) Only in August. So we made like three months and only one month. And this this why uh, people from Northern Italy was not able to go outside and go, uh, for example, in Europe or in America or in China and Thailand to do their vacation. Right. They couldn't do that. So they were forced to choose 
the south of Italy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Italy and yes. special, in a special way, the south of Italy. Yes. And this was a great discover. Now, I'm talking with my friends that have bed and breakfast hotels or restaurants, and we all said the same thing. So it was a good thing because they were forced to go in a place that they have many, uh, prejudices. 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 About the South, about the situation here. But they discovered and they told us, we didn't imagine, we didn't expect this. We didn't expect your gentleness, your way to take care about your clients, about the landscapes, about the food. About the people, because when in a little village you go to the bar to take breakfast, people is friendly. Listen, Pietro. And, and yes, tell the, me. The way you talk about Celico and your bed and bike, I want to go there right now. I'd love to be there right now. Oh, yeah. It sounds yeah. so good. It sounds yeah. so good. But let me ask you this. I'm we're very going, happy. <laughs> we're going to wrap this up shortly, but I have a question for you. When everything about COVID is finally finished, when they say, okay, yes. it's finished, we're all good, we can go back to whatever normal, what is the first thing you're going to do when COVID is officially declared it's finished? Maybe uh, a trip. A trip? A trip. Where? Maybe in Brazil. Oh. When I came in uh, 2018 in Canada, it was a great period and uh, I'm grateful to everybody in Canada. But I had to go to Brazil too. I had a lot of friends there in Brazil. Uh-huh. And I have many clients that, that come here too, you know, from Brazil, Argentina. I want to go there to spend 15 days, not more, in Brazil. Bongawe Jamini. Whatever mistakes, for instance, that I've made in the past or whatever mistake I make, because we're human and we err, I have, as long as I'm alive, I have a chance to redeem myself. I have a chance to correct it. And I believe that with everything, because we're made to regenerate, life regenerates. So um, I believe that we as a nation have come to this place that we're at. Not to die, but to grow to a better place. So, Bongoe, let's talk about you first, if we may, and then get to the situation in Eswatini. You were born 47, roughly, years ago in what was then known as Swaziland. What was life like for you as a child growing up there? As a child, it was lovely. It was, um, I grew up sort of in an isolated place because I grew up in sugar country, like a little village where people are there because of the sugar company. So I grew up outside of the main village where everybody stayed, sort of surrounded by bush on one side and a nature reserve on the other side. So yeah, it was lovely. And I used to go to my grandmother's for school holidays. So a lot of nature. Anskar Bitterman. Berlin is a world-famous city. It's a world city. So it's in a kind of spotlight itself. So can you apply the same sort of thought to the culture that you live in? I think after the Second World War, the perception of Germany and the self-perception of the Germans themselves changed a lot. 
And we always felt like we were in a spotlight or in a searchlight, if you want to see that, so that the whole world was looking at us and hoping that we don't do anything wrong again. So the same thing, which applied to Germany as a whole, uh, but also to Berlin in particular, changed the people. As a German, you could never leave the country, go to other countries and just behave as an individual. You always brought the history of the Third Reich and you always were a representative of your country. I remember that when I was 10 years old, we went to the Netherlands and that was in 1988. And I remember that people started throwing rocks at us and I didn't realize why. And that was because we were Germans. Mm. And so as a German, you always felt like being in a spotlight representing your culture. But when it comes to Berlin, I think it's a little bit special compared to other parts of Germany, because although they're carrying the weight of history, they deal with this weight differently. They don't care that much anymore. And that's what Berlin is known for, not to care too much. You sort of needed that characteristic, didn't you? Because Berlin, East, West, you had two different worlds occupying that space. Yeah, you had two different worlds and uh, we had four different sectors. You had the French, you had the British, you had the English, uh, you had the Russians. And then, of course, they were part of two worlds. And, and then when you slice it more, you also had the anti-war movement of the 70s and 80s. Because every German man had to go to the army. But if you moved to West Germany, you didn't have to go to the army. So you had a lot of people from this peace movement from Western Germany moving to West Berlin. So you, you had this stack of different political views accumulating in Western Germany. And then if you imagine when this big movement of the 60s where a lot of um, Turkish and also Italians, right, came to Germany. So to Berlin was this the wave of Turkish immigrants coming here. So they brought their own system of sometimes uh, colliding worldviews to relatively local-minded Berlin people of the 80s. John Arnone. I read your book a couple of weeks ago, as soon as it was released. I have to say that uh, your attention to detail was very apparent, as I admittedly reminisced on the many segments I was familiar with and very pleasantly surprised by the many that I was not. How difficult and or gratifying was it to write this book? Well, I started from a position that everyone makes a connection to music. And then it occurred to me that as Canadians, we are historically connected to the music of the Beatles. And I wanted to pursue that. I wanted to prove to myself and then to others that this was not just a small piece of trivia or perhaps a question for a game of trivial pursuit, but more profound than that, more comprehensive than that. And in fact, I have found uh, nearly 70 years of connections between Canada and the Beatles. And I guess some of them are known sparsely. Some fragments might be available in the media, perhaps as black and white images. And, you know, we all have our tales of the hysteria at their concerts in Canada. But there's so much more than that. And the way I positioned it is that we know that the UK and the US were the formative places that launched and then, I guess, propelled the careers of the Beatles, both as a band and as solo artists. 
But there's no other country that holds what I call a solid second-tier footing in their success. You can't write a book of perhaps more than a chapter or two about the Beatles in Argentina or the Beatles in Japan or the Beatles in Norway. It's just not possible because the depth of connections don't exist with those so-called second-tier markets or second-tier nations. But Canada is solidly on top behind the U.S. and the U.K. as the formative place for the arc of their career, their beginnings, their middle, and then, of course, that led to their success. And then, of course, their dissolution. And Canada actually had a part to play in their breakup. And that is as profound as it gets. Croc E. Moses. These are parents' influences. Mm. So you've got that in your early life. Mm. You've got your experiences in Africa. Have you evolved a kind of unique philosophy of life based upon all of these experiences? Something you, a core set of beliefs, let's say, or thoughts you come back to now and then when going through difficult times, say? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the lines that I tell myself if I'm struggling, sometimes I don't have a home. So I, I say to myself, there's something about feeling at home, wherever you are, mm. the possibility that you can feel at home. And that's maybe what I was trying to say earlier. So I try and remind myself if I'm down that, ah, you can always feel at home, even if you don't literally have a home base where you know you can be indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's the one sort of philosophy and then I always go back to rhythm. So pace and the pulse and the peace reminds me to just pace yourself, be here and be in the peace. And again, I go back to rhythm. I say to myself, rhythm is the decision. Front lines, countless front lines everywhere. Symptoms of an invisible war abound A war on the deepest wells of trust A war on healthy disagreements There's a war on the tap roots of patience A war on elephants and sound evidence There's a war on the sweet silence between the sweet rains There's a war on rhythm Paul Denawed, when you were talking about Japanese culture, I'm sure that there are listeners who understand immediately what you're talking about when you're talking about sort of stereotypical personification of the Japanese people and how they are, their, their intelligence, their age, what they've done, these remarkable things on this small island and so on. There's also a side that is expressed that is not necessarily positive. And that is the stresses and suicidal tendencies that are often talked about in the media. What's your take on all that? Wow. Okay. Had a question. Yeah. I think the work culture here is, well, is broken, honestly. I think that people work too hard. And I think people work too hard in a lot of places, but I think that more people work extra too hard in Japan. And uh, I have friends who regularly work 60 hours a week and stuff and don't see their kids much, a couple hours on the weekend or whatever. I don't know, uh, maybe be nice is more of a philosophy than I really give it credit for. But 
I think if you're working 60 hours, your boss is not being very nice or the corporation that you're working for is not being very nice. And I think probably you're not being very nice to yourself or to your family. And the other thing that I thought of in terms of a character that was sort of uh, imbued upon me by a parental figure also comes from my mother, and that's balance. I'm not suggesting that everybody should lie around and eat bonbons on the couch all day. I think there's very much to be said for working hard, but you've got to find a balance there somewhere. And for everyone, that balance is going to be different. And I understand that for some people, working 60 hours is great. They love it. They're happy to do that. I would question whether they really are happy to do that, but I'll leave it up to them, really. But I think that there's a lot of people in Japan who are working 60 hours a week and don't love it. And the only reason they're doing it is because that's just kind of the ethic here. And there's this thing where you never leave before your boss leaves the office. And so people sit around at work pushing papers across their desk for hours waiting for their boss to go home just so that they can go home. Things like that, which I really think is ridiculous. But it's just part of the culture. It's just the way things work here. Tracy Dittman, your children, I would say, I would hazard to guess by the very fact that you even had the confidence to do what you did as they grow older, they'll come to that realization themselves that you yourself as a parent have done something very different from the norm. And they will come, I think, to appreciate that. And that is basically just love, security and self-esteem. I like that. Love, security and self-esteem. Yes. And I think if you have that in the family, mind you, the last couple of years, I think everyone is Mm-hmm. really struggled with those issues and homeschoolers as well, then yes, I think then your core is strong. And from the, your core, you can be resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And of all the challenges that you've faced over the last, say, 10 years of homeschooling the kids, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome for you and the boys? The biggest challenge has been, well, I would say probably pivoting the last couple of years. I don't know if we want to go here, but the pivoting from COVID and trying to navigate all of this has been the biggest disruptor, the biggest challenge, the biggest squeeze on our family, Mm -hmm. more so the last half than the first half. As far as the academics go, actually, it's been very good. I have pretty neurotypical kids. Neither of them have um, learning disabilities. We haven't had to navigate that journey. I know other homeschoolers have had different challenges, but for us, I would say, yeah, it's been the last couple of years. Nadina Mackey. You're really inside a very enriched environment. You were immersed by the sounds of it in a family mm-hmm. where there was great creativity and energy and drive, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And that's not a comfortable thing either. No. Well, here's the question that follows on that. You've played at Carnegie Hall. You've just said that. You've played at many halls with wonderful orchestras. And my mm-hmm. question is this. For those of us who are not musicians, can you describe mm-hmm. what it's like What you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're hearing when you're in the middle of an incredible piece of music inside an amazing orchestra in a grand hall like Carnegie. What's the experience for you like? 
well, I guess that each concert would be different. And I think that all musicians are addicted to what they do. So it's an internal world that we have going into it. If you know the work and you're performing it on tour, you're in a different hall every night or every other night. So you have the reality that's in your mind and body, and then you have the experience of seeing how it resonates differently and different acoustics. So I think it's why we want to keep doing it. And uh, it's also, you never know exactly what's going to happen. So there's mm -hmm. that kind of awareness of trying to hit the target at all times while staying in motion. And it's physically intoxicating, and it's something that can be honed and refined for a long career. Earlier, I started to say that it's an athletic endeavor that actually can endure for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think to think about your question from multiple perspectives, when you're young, you're kind of nervous and excited about being in a famous hall. When you're older, it might be equally shallow. You might be thinking about the reviewers or something. But at some point, if you get to return a number of times the experience becomes more nuanced and you get to anticipate that hall with an eagerness and also the energy of the audience. And that changes how you perform. So mm -hmm. I think in the midst of for the playing, if the acoustic is glorious, it's pure pleasure. And I think it's constant, the sense that you don't want to damage that experience. The Sill is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.